welcome to the fifth episode of Confessions of a Rock and Roll Cameraman. I'm Pat Canavan, here in conversation with my good friend, Tony Wanamaker. Thank you, Pat. Tony, today is a variety day. We've talked uh, already about the Rolling Stones, we've talked yeah. about rock and roll, but today we're going to Africa. Yeah, man. And you actually went to Africa with much music? Yeah, I went there uh, once with much music and uh, two other times with uh, other uh, producers. Right, okay. Well, let's uh, let's delve into it. Yeah. That's an, because I've never been to Africa. And I guess the year was what, 1990 when you, when you went? They were in the, uh, in the 90s and again in the 2000s. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's start yeah. with, with your travels with Much Music. Who were you with and why were you there? The Much Music had an international show called Clip Trip, and it meant that we traveled the globe following the culture. And in, in culture, everybody knows it's poetry and music. Well, we're a music station. We're covering music ostensibly, right? But it was a great catalyst for us to meet and greet the people who actually make different music, like, for example, Clipsonian, right? We right. find that. We could find uh, in India, Urdu music, for example. Or uh, in Africa, uh, it was amazing. So we were working with a lot of indigenous people, particularly Maasai Mara. I met the Maasai in the Maasai Mara and in the Serengeti Plains. Well, sure. And in that time in popular culture, we yeah. were seeing mm -hmm. uh, people like Paul Simon and certainly Peter oh. Gabriel, yeah. like reaching into that culture and, and yeah. saying, you know, hello world, let's look at this. Uh, at that time, they were they were pushing the envelope because they were working on the notion of apartheid. It was a terrible thing that we still had with, with clearly laws about discrimination. That was well, South sure. Africa. I spent a lot of time, Pat, at the time in equatorial East Africa. So uh -huh. I'm working in the countries of Tanzania and Kenya. And to, so for understand geographically, Kenya is kind of just a little north of the equator and they call it the Northern Hemisphere and that's where you'll find the Serengeti. And south of that, uh, and I stand corrected, I always get that mistaken. That is the Maasai Mara, and south in Tanzania is the Serengeti. So on this particular trip, yep. who are you there with? I'm with uh, two stellar human beings, and one is a producer named Morgan Fleury. Uh, love you, Morgan. One of the best. And uh, Diego Fuentes, the, one of the greatest, gregarious guys you could travel in the world with. And he spoke Spanish. One third of the world speaks Spanish. Kind well, of a nice thing to have well, for traveling. Yeah. yeah. So Morgan... Yes. Tell me about her, because she's a woman yeah. going into, uh, I guess, you're with the Maasai at this time. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we are working in rural Africa, so there's not a lot of amenities. It's no, there's not too many uh, four- and five-star hotels, although there's, there's four- and five-star encampments. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about this. Yeah. But, so, but I wanted to just broach on Morgan for a second, because she's a, a white woman yes. going into... Um, a patriarchal society, I would imagine. Yeah. And what would that? What, what would that? What well, did you witness in that? For it's her, tough, it's tough going. In a lot of countries, uh, the notions of gender equality don't exist, like we're finding here in North America. And it's taken us a long time to get there, as we all know. And certainly, uh, we have uh, a, a great female staff. I might say we've got uh, giggles here on, on, on the left. There's Katie and. Elizabeth's over there in a long lens, and uh, Trina's over there doing her her, her ting, and uh, this is this is this is normal. This is status quo. Well, for us, yeah, but absolutely. But in some places, some various parts of the world, sadly, a little bit slagging behind, and we're coming to terms. Morgan wasn't a token woman producer. She was the genuine. She's a real producer, and that's why I loved her. She's the genuine article, and uh, so she took some. Uh, she took. It was difficult for her. Uh, however, she persevered because actions speak louder than words, 
and uh, she led by example. So people fell in place and people loved her. She was great. But if, if that didn't get you, Diego Fuentes got you because uh, he had a smile the size of Columbia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people loved him. <laughs> and I loved his company. We were great pals on the road. It was, made all the difference. Chemistry is everything. And you know this is a band person. Yeah. If you're on the road and you're with four people, you better have good chemistry or you're going to hate the way each other brush their teeth in a week. Now, how long were you down there with these two? Uh, we would go down there for weeks on end. Uh, it, 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 the culmination of all my trips, I probably spent uh, uh, two months in uh, East Africa. Uh, what was really great is I had a chance to visit the Big Five. Oh, the Big Five? Yeah, man. McDonald's, Burger King, Mr. Sub. What are we talking here? Those are all my food groups, incidentally. <laughs> but however, in Africa, uh, at the period, and this is the, the romantic, colonialist African we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I... Yeah, because I was only joking about those big five. Yeah. So we're talking about the big trophy hunting oh, perfect. games. That's exactly what it was, Pat. Ugh. They called them the trophies because they were conceived as the five most difficult, most ferocious animals to hunt. And back then when you said you're going to go out and shoot some animals, that meant you were going to shoot them. Today we got them, we filmed them, thank goodness, right? Uh, but that was colonial Africa at the turn of the 20th century. So you have to understand, you have people like uh, Hemingway who will show up there later in the 30s. Uh, at that period earlier, you have guys like Lord Delamere, right, who are considered to be, if you will, when you think of a quintessential sort of British bloke, right, somebody with a certain amount of dignity and aristocracy, you're probably thinking of Lord Delamere. And as a matter of fact, when I checked into a very nostalgic hotel called the Norfolk Hotel, and I loved it because Hemingway's on that same apron that I was drinking Tusker beer on. Wow. Uh, it was pretty cool. And I was at the Lord Delamere Terrace. Oh, my God. He's got his own terrace still. <laughs> so the big five, let's yeah. talk about them. Now, you're not out there to, to shoot them, no, shoot not them. No, I'm out there to videotape them. You're out there to videotape them. Super exciting. The proper way. Yeah. And yeah, the big five are uh, lion, leopard, right? And uh, rhino and elephant. And lastly, the African buffalo, where I like to refer to as the Cape buffalo, which is generally called. Yeah. Yeah. Ferocious. Uh, it's really difficult, by the way, to see uh, the leopard. The leopard's confusing for me. It took me a while to get used to it. Leopard skin, if, you're, if, you, if you want, what's the difference between a leopard and a cheetah visually? Uh, leopards have the big rosettes on their skin, right? Uh, on, their, and on their coat, rather. And the cheetahs have, if you will, polka dots. Yeah. And also they have a little bit of a black thing here for... Uh, for sunlight, right? So, and, and don't you just have little skinny legs to make them go yeah, fast? Yeah, it's hard for me, Pat, because they, they really look the same in the savanna. And you see oh, them sticking okay, up right. in the grass, right? But uh, it wasn't until my last visit in Africa I finally got to see a leopard, so I achieved seeing all five. You'll see a lot of Cape buffaloes. There are quite a few of them. They're all sitting there laying on top of each other in the mud. Lions are extremely, they can be difficult, but it's hard to get action. And when I was filming lions, I was with one group and I was waiting there a very long time until finally the lion managed to lift his head up and roar like the MGM logo. And I took full advantage and that was the shot. I hit it. That's a pain. And then he went back to sleep. But when that happens, the radio calls go out and every land cruiser comes in and every tourist wants to see this. And I understand because they want to see the big five. They're right. Right. So they just descend on it. Yeah. 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 So this is this is the '90s. Yep. So you know it's some time ago. Um, certainly, they pro they probably have better amenities now. But what was it like to be there in the '90s? They probably don't have lots of fresh water. They don't have lots of uh, well, things for a Canadian boy. Yeah. To really. 
to really adjust, acclimatize to. There's a lot that you have to acclimatize to. Oh, yeah. Well, number one, the sun's really hot on me because I'm near the equator. So I always like to wear my billy bottom. Right? <laughs> and uh, I like it. Big fedora. Cuts a lot of light. Easy for me to still shoot. I got activity. I wear this because a lot of times it's either dusty. All right. Or um, there's a carcass of an animal that's kind of ripe, and uh, this kind of takes the edge off for me. Right. I wear a vest. I usually wear the safari gear. It's apropos. People wonder why. Well, I wear the shirt. A good friend of mine who wrote this book, Dolphin's Tooth, uh, Bruce gave me. It's from Nahani. He was a Nahani River guide up in the Northwest Territories. So it's easy to wash. Lots of pockets for stuff, right? Uh, and it vents nicely when I'm in that, 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 that climate. Uh, the other things, Pat, because you're working in a place not unlike a a full resort at Cancun, uh, there isn't the amenities, as, as you say, and so you got to supply your own. So I always carry this. Uh, I'm ex-military. I used to be with the Queen's Own Rifles, and so this is a hangover from that day. But my canteen of water, this is this is what you need every day. And uh, my rubric was if I came to half a canteen, I would shut down until we got water again. Right. Really, if I was in an emergency situation, I'd take these tablets and purify the water, but this would taste like shit. Uh, but I managed, but I could, I could hydrate myself. So, well, hang on a second. You, you took yeah. tablets. Yeah. Uh, what do you do? You just you take water from a source and just yeah. drop the tablets in? And I then- would watch the, the level of brackish water. Actually, when I was in Haiti, I saw water that was ostensibly brown, and they pumped <laughs> it through a modern filter, and... And it was great because the uh, the surgeon on the other end poured a glass of water and drank in front of me, as if to say, "This is totally fine. You'll be okay." Right. Uh, so I pursued that, but I carried this here. This was a, a great filter I picked up at Mountain Equipment Co-op. Okay. So and, what does that do? Well, I would put this in my whatever water. So generally, hotels or whatever would have some water. I grab that water and then I would purify it quickly through here, and I pump this into my. A container before I pour it here. So my water was clean all day. That way I wouldn't get sick. Uh, and you have to understand this. Uh, when you're working a documentary, I tend to take the easy route when it comes to, to sort of, uh, if you will, garnering food. Uh, a lot of folks when I was in India say, come on out, we're going to have some street food. And I'm all for it, believe me. But I can't, I can't afford to get sick. If I get right. this I'm out for the rest of the four or five days. Uh, Production wouldn't allow it. Not allow it. There's, they don't provide for it. And so you even purify the hotel water. Oh, absolutely, mate. Everything. Really? Everything going for it. My ice cubes, everything. I would not. I had to sanitize everything. A lot of clothes sometimes if I came out of a place that might have had a high high density of cholera, for example, or something. A lot of my clothes, my wife would meet me at the airport. And I would strip out of it, put in a garbage bag. Two things. If I felt it was low risk, it would go home and be put in the free freezer for three days. So okay. Kill off bacteria. Uh, okay. Yeah. And if it was really dangerous, like, and I won't mention those countries because they don't deserve it, uh, I would just leave it in the uh, garbage can the airport. At the airport. Oh my gosh. So, but that's not the only, water is a huge challenge, yeah. oh. especially if you're out there yeah. and there's, there's nothing to drink or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But what happens if you have a medical emergency? Uh, you, you get sick yeah. and, and what do you do? Again, it's all about, you know, your group and you depend on each other's back. And one yeah. thing I always did, I was very prudent before we went on any big trips, I always upgrade my first aid. First aid, AED, CPR. So one of us is always trained, so we can kind of help one another in the field. So uh, as a cameraman, yeah, <clears throat> what do you got to take? What do you got to take for Well, them? a lot of things I would take. Uh, here's something very simple. These are uh, actually for uh, somebody who might uh, have uh, diabetes. These are the, the insulin shots you take. But I would take the syringe because it was easy for me to carry. And a lot of time, uh, syringes are I've been used, right? And uh, so this way I knew it was clean, that I wouldn't be picking up any disease. Oh, wait a minute. They would... Use a, a needle a second time. Second, third, fourth. Oh, It's better right. than the needle you don't have, right? 
So you make do with it. And right. so as I would immediately contact and let them know that I'm carrying my own, use my hypodermic needles. Additionally, on this jacket, yeah. Pat, when I was in, uh, for example, in the former Soviet Union, uh, we were at a time where we thought the city was going to be taking over, right, with civil insurrection. So <clears throat> in my back, I carry in a plastic uh, envelope uh, <clears throat> all kinds of documents, right, so that I could quickly go to U.S. Embassy. Right. And to make sure I could pay my way there, I always carried 1,000 U.S. hidden, right, cash, because cash is, is king. Uh, cash is king and or uh, Marlboro cigarettes would get you a cab ride any time. Wow. Yeah. You're like the Jason Bourne of camera. <laughs> Yeah, really nice. Wow! <laughs> no, I was just, you, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, passports in the in the back, Gotta be wrapped right. in plastic. Yeah, man. Yeah. Must have gotten hot though. Uh, it got it's really hot, and it got hotter when I was in really high climates. Now I'm not supposed to have this, and I apologize to those, but it's been a long time. This is a, a bulletproof vest, and this is a light body armor that I I, I got uh, bought uh, <laughs> underground. I think this originally started with Metro Toronto Police. I'm not really sure. But uh, anyways, I wore this for safety for a body shot in some really hot areas. And I was very hot wearing this, but the security felt great. And I was in one really hot spot in, uh, in Guatemala once. And uh, this is a great thing to have then. Because uh, you don't know, they'll try and take a body shot. And a lot of times I could sneak a camera around there and then not expose my body. But it gave me a, at least a, enough confidence, Pat, that uh, yeah. I could get back to my job. Well, a layer of protection. Yeah. And th yeah. there's no holes in it. So thank Actually, God you weren't, uh, you didn't have to test it. hundred <laughs> percent. Right. You know. Thank goodness. But a lot of times before 9-11, it was incredible how you could kind of move about airports. And uh, it was unbelievable. Before 9-11, I could take that an overhead baggage. Oh, yeah. The first Gillette Razor. You know, that's it. I just shave a little bit there. But think of that. And uh, that was only there because uh, the customs officers knew the guy who gave me this, a guy named Leonard Padilla who was the original uh, bounty hunter, and he's a very good friend of Arnold Schwarzenegger and George W. Bush. Yeah. So you, now, but did you take that knife with you to Africa? No, I wouldn't carry that. I carried a little jackknife. Oh, okay. uh, that was it. Yeah. Uh, my weapon was a two-time pencil, and right. uh, I was busy uh, keeping that baby running. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, from a guy from Scarborough, yep. a Canada boy, yep. uh, you, you don't really think about all the little things that you need to survive in Africa. Yeah, man. Uh, certainly in Canada, our biggest threat is black flies, mosquitoes <laughs> in the woods. Uh, what about bugs? What'd you do about bugs? Were there bugs? Yeah, I don't recall. Like, it, everybody who spent any time in Northern Ontario knows about the assessment. It could be deer flies, black flies, you name it. Mosquitoes. Right? Uh, I don't recall. I don't think that. There was one island, actually, in Vancouver's west coast that we were on. Uh, Salt Spring, <laughs> there was no no bugs, and it's like, how's that possible? But uh, I, you need uh, you need a higher authority to answer that than me, my friend. I, right. I just I don't recall that being the issue. I just know the sun was uh, because he had the equator. I was always pink every day. Right, had to be careful. Right, uh, even though I was wearing all kind of manner of sun protection. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting because we spent time in the Marai and also in the city of Nairobi, which was an interesting thing for me, Pat. Because uh, one of the episodes we talked about Captain Kirk and his friends. Yes. And uh, on the way in Nairobi, and this is indicative of all big cities, there's always a, a period. There's always areas of urban blight. Okay. And on the way in, there's a roundabout. And this horrified me. And I saw young Kenyans that were desperate. And they looked like stick figures moving around. And uh, they had one hand on the inhalant and the other hand looking for money. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. An inhalant of what? Like, first of all, how old were these... Uh, when children. you say kids, children, 
Like nine, ten? Oh, easily. Yeah, maybe younger. Oh, God. Now, some of them were laying supine on the ground, maybe unconscious, maybe dead. Uh, and, and what were they doing? Like, where did they get this stuff? Uh, well, uh, contact cements, rubber cements, they're abundant. All kinds of adhesives in a bag, really cheap, and it's easy to inhale. So, unfortunately, uh, some took that direction, uh, this direction in life, and uh, were horribly addicted and horribly in, in, in a uh, station in life that I don't think there was much chance of surviving. Uh, and that's shocking. I've seen it a lot. I've become conditioned. I've seen more terrible examples of it. Uh, but when you're a cinematographer, uh, you are going to see highlights and lowlights, and you need to understand both. And the one thing I went forward with my brother is I always made sure if I was going, I was going to tell the truth story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be brutal. You added later, but this is the truth, and I didn't want to hide stuff. What does that mean, Pat? Uh, by analogy, when I was in uh, Guatemala, I was looking for a rural shot of a farmer. Okay. I try to avoid stereotypes. I make it absolutely, I'm adamant I don't do stereotypes. So I was waiting for the moment, and there it was, Pat. Beautiful backlight raking over the back. I could see him bringing in the harvest, right? It looked like a hay, like something like hay that I would understand. Right, and sure. At the back, there's a young man. He's hanging on the backpack, and he's got a cell phone. And he's talking away. <laughs> so I like the idea of it's modern. Yeah. It's it's cultural and it's romantic. It worked for me. It's a great picture. Nice. But it wasn't a stereotype, brother. Right. And so I watched that. So when I was working with people, like, and look at this. This is beautiful. This is going to be by some of the Maasai women, and this would be something you would adorn yourself with. Right oh here. yeah. Very pretty. You'd see those really really nice. Uh, I don't wear this anymore. This was a crazy thing. Uh, this is a beautiful bracelet that was given to me, right, by a Maasai prince. And uh, this fella here, I had the chance to meet in Tanzania. And if I, and I have close-ups. Uh, it might be hard for you, Trina or, or Elizabeth, to grab that shot. But he was a prince of his community. And if you see, he's wearing a lion's mane, and that's to, uh, to represent the fact he actually had to kill a lion, sadly. Uh, he had to, and for necessity, not for sport. Uh, this lion had uh, interloped. It was inside his uh, domicile, and they used like dung and mud sort of uh, perimeter. And inside that, they have their cattle, and the cattle is a lifeline for the Maasai. And uh, so he had to kill that, and, he, and uh, so he wears that. But he's a prince of the community, and I was really, really impressed for him. Uh, super intelligent guy. Uh, he could speak Swahili, of course. Right. Uh, English, a little bit of French, and he knew, Pat, that if he walked as far as that horizon, there was a place he could uplink and uh, talk to the rest of the world on satellite. Wow, because yeah. that's that's yeah. fascinating to me. The fact that first of all, you know, he's he's this alpha male yeah, in man. Africa. He has to fend off the community with lions and and whatnot. I mean, that's it's it's, it's amazing. But also, there the other day we talked about uh, Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry. Yes, and uh, excellent point, Lieutenant Uhuru. Yeah. Uh, what was incredible about that, and uh, this was a realization, on the way in, we would go ahead and resupply in Nairobi, right? Okay. Uh, uh, what an interesting, exciting city, but uh, a couple of things. And on the way in, uh, we passed by this park called Uhura Park. Uh, Uhuru Park, I stand Uhuru correct. Uhuru Park. Uhuru Park. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that means freedom in Swahili. Uh, and Gene Roddenberry was actually uh, cognizant of this and changed the name to Uhura, but... Uh, the idea of putting that notion of freedom in. So again, we had talked in great length about uh, with the representation of the character by right. Michelle uh, Nichols, and uh, yeah, this was that added added bonus value. I mean, legitimizing. Yeah, and, and seriously, and for 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 the story that you told us in that episode, yeah. like the fact that she was uh, a black woman yes. at that time, yeah. and symbolically her name was Freedom. Yeah, I mean, wow, Fantastic. that. 
yeah. blows my yeah. mind. I love it. Uh, and thank you, Gene, for that. That was genius. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seriously. So let's get back to the, the big five because yes, you're there to yeah. shoot them as well as the community and the music and the culture. Mm-hmm. Out of all of it, like I would think the lion, you know, a lion chasing me down would be pretty scary. Yes. A cheetah, not so much because of the skinny legs. Yeah. <laughs> and a tiny mouth can't yep. possibly eat me. Yep. But, but what would you say is the the most scary uh, animal? The, the... Well, I, I went there uh, thinking that uh, it was a lion. But yeah. I only found the lion sleeping every day, and I had to wait till it wake up and roar and go back to sleep. And I thought, well, that's not so intimidating, but beautiful to watch. Sure. But oddly enough, it's it's the elephants, you know, and you're. I'm, I was shocked by that because you think it's a sort of an innocuous animal. Well, elephants are super so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, they they seem so nice yeah. with the tusks and the, the 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 trunk, and why are they dangerous? Well, and that's uh, you know, you they're go, not even meat eaters. No, and I learned a long time ago when I'm in country, take advice from the people who live there. Right. And when the Maasai told me, the guys in the red tunics said, "Hey." Uh, the only animal we're afraid of is the elephant. <laughs> what? Why is that? You, you can fend yourself off from everything else. And they said, Tony, it's really simple. Uh, you can climb a tree, but the elephant can knock it down. When they're in stampede oh. mode, they're dangerous. When they're in stampede yeah. mode. Yeah. And I was uh, bivouacked with uh, a good friend of mine, Diego Fuentes, who I travel a lot of the world with. And Diego, I love you. Good seeing you, man. And uh, so Diego and I were in the same camp. And Diego said to me, Pat, he said, you know, Tony, I don't want to wake you up, and I guy who snores. I really snore a lot. And I'm like, what? Why is that an issue? And he says, well, I'm going to wake you up. And if I do, I want you to whack me with a stick. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're serious, right? You want me to hit you with a stick? And I said, I won't do that. And he said, no, no, no. I'll, I'll drive you crazy. You want to hit me with a stick. So what I have here is an actual mace from a Maasai warrior. These things are great. They walk around these a lot. A lot of times they do this to tell me to shut up, which is great. A lot of times they can hit an animal attacking and go, and throw it like a throw boomerang it. and knock it out. Oh, so and, it's there. It's a it's a weapon. Yeah. yeah. So I was out, uh, and we use this for the House of Commons Parliament, the mace. But uh, so what was interesting was uh, I was out one time having lunch in the savannah, and the Maasai come up to me and gave me a little tap, and he went, and he was getting ready to line one up. It was hyenas coming in to, to attack us? Ooh. Right? And that animal does scare me. <clears throat> but back to your point. So about the scary animal. So yeah. in the middle of the night, I feel like there's this orange flakes pixie dust. It's kind of a weird, ethereal kind of vibe going on. And I'm thinking, I had a long day. I'm probably enjoying a really great dream, man. I'm in my, I, maybe Barbarella with Jane Fonda. Things are happening. Sure. It's kind of cool. And then I look, finally have the courage, Pat, because this reminds me of another camp when the generator shut down. Oh. And I'm finally looking at the flap, and right. all I see, bright orange hues moving. And I thought, oh, my God, now I'm super terrified because I don't know what it is. I don't know what's happening. And so like any red-blooded Canadian, Pat, I dove under the sheets and I hit and went back to bed. Excellent. So in the morning, the day of discovery, I opened my eyes. I'm still here. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, lo and behold, I found out that we were there was an African stampede, man. Uh, the genuine article, the elephants were stampeding our camp. And what they do to stave off, right, us being trampled to death. No, when, when you say like a stampede, yeah. you're talking about a, uh, a, pack, a pack of pachyderms. <laughs> like a pack of, of many ton elephants. Yeah, and all coming through. And these guys have the tusk. And yeah. they're coming in my direction. And what they do is they 
quickly roll oil canisters in, oil drums, and they put them as a spear in the front. So our encampment is behind that spear. So when the elephants come in, yeah. they're diverted because of the fire and they split. Wow. And that's the only way to control that. So I, I woke up in the morning, by the way, great sleep. And uh, also Diego was pissed off at me. Okay. Because <laughs> I managed to get back to sleep. <clears throat> he was snoring. Diego, it is really loud. Yeah. I, I think I did hit him with a stick. Oh, God. Because he was really sour with me in the morning. He had some bruises. I lost my mind. I'm sorry, man, but you did say. Um, but yeah, that's how I have Well, his snoring's like an elephant call, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whole stampede. I had, I had not thought of that. You know what? That was probably the reason why. I could yeah. have triggered that. Yeah, Diego, yeah. you got some explaining to do. <laughs> Mating call. <laughs> Tony, as always, Thank it's, you. it's a treasure it is a, uh, to relive these experiences with you, you know. I kind of feel like I've uh, been to Africa vicariously through the lens. And I want nice. to thank you guys for tuning in. And please, if you subscribe to our mailing list, we will send you out a medley of the 80s manuscript or essay. And we'll also put you in line for some awesome draws. And you'll be able to see some great additional content that you don't get on the show. And uh, special times with Tony. And I think that's it. Well, I'd love to. One thing I'd like to give a shout out. So we have sure. our all-girls squad. That yes. we call the new Go-Go's, by the way. Okay. <laughs> okay. And the new Go-Go's are, are working the Canon cameras. And we're working R5 and R6 cameras because they have 4K acquisition. And in my opinion, I've worked with a lot of, and I have a competitor product as well. Canon products, in my opinion, sharp, sharp focus. I love it, right? And menus where they're supposed to be. And a color science you can't beat. So thank you. And thank you, ladies. Yes. The Go-Go's. Indeed. The new Go-Go's. Yes, because podcasts just don't happen by themselves, people. They happen with many, many people. But I, th I think at some point they might revamp the name to Giggly and the Go-Go's. Giggly and the we'll Go-Go's. Right, Kate? <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, so thank you again for tuning in. Uh, we hope you found this special. And we really look forward to seeing you next time. Next Cheers. time. <laughs>